Well, good morning. My name is Nate. If we don't know each other, I'd love to meet you. At some point, I'll be in the lobby after the service, and I'd love to do that. We're continuing a series today uh, on the book of Acts, and Acts is the history of the early church. It tells the story of how did the message of Jesus go from this obscure group of Jews in Jerusalem to this phenomenon all over the Roman world. How did it get from Jerusalem to Rome? That's what the book of Acts tells us. And the, the whole point of the book is to show us that God is on a mission in the world to send and save. He's on a mission in the world to send and save. God the Father sent Jesus to the earth. Jesus is sending the Holy Spirit and Jesus is sending the spirit-empowered church to the ends of the earth so that all peoples, all ethnicities, all languages might come to trust in Jesus, the one who can save from our sins. That's the point of the book. Last week, we looked at how Jesus ascended to the Father. Um, and today, we're going to look at the first decision that the apostles had to make after Jesus ascended to the Father. So what we're going to do today is very briefly walk through uh, what's happening so that we understand the story, and then uh, we're going to talk about what we can learn from it related to decision-making. So we're going to talk about um, some words that can help us make wise decisions. And we've all got decisions to make, and um, some are big, some are small. We're all here today because of some decisions that we made, a sequence of decisions. Our lives are full of decisions. Our lives become the sum of our decisions. And so we're going to try to talk today about how to make wise decisions. So that's the plan. Um, Acts chapter 1 is where we'll be. So if you have a Bible, Acts chapter 1 is where we are today. If you need one, um, there's one uh, provided in the seats for you. You can follow along there. This is on page 966. Or you can use your scripture journal notebook thing um, if you want. That could also be cool. I don't know what page it's on in there. But if you have one of those, my guess is you, you know it. Page what? Four. Four. All right. Thank you for the participation. Okay. So let's walk through what's happening here. So uh, Jesus ascended to the Father. That's Acts 1, verses 9 through 11. Um, then the apostles returned to Jerusalem, tells us in verse 12. So verses 12 through 14, they go back to Jerusalem. They go to this upper room in this house. Um, Jesus' family is there. They start praying together. And at some point after they're praying, Peter stands up and he says, look, there used to be 12 of us. Now there's only 11 because Judas. And so that was all though in fulfillment of scripture. Um, and so we need to replace Judas and pick a 12th guy. And so uh, they create some criteria for what they're looking for in this guy. They pray and ask God to help them choose the right person. And then they cast lots and they pick Matthias um, to be the guy. That's what happens, okay? Now, let's talk about what we could learn about decision-making through this event, okay? So here's the outline for today. Six words for wise decision-making. Six words for wise decision-making. Here's the first one. 
sovereignty. Sovereignty. By sovereign, by sovereignty, I just mean who's in charge? Who's in charge? The first question that must be answered when making a decision is who's in charge? Who am I trying to please? Whose kingdom am I trying to build? Whose will am I trying to accomplish? Who at the end of the day must approve of the decision? That's the first question that must be answered. In this text, it's clear that the apostles believe that God is sovereign. God must be pleased. Look at verse 12. It says, then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. Why are they going back to Jerusalem? Are they from Jerusalem? Do they live in Jerusalem? No, look at verse 11. They said, the angels speak to them and say, men of Galilee. Literally, they're called men of Galilee because that's where they're from. But they go back to Jerusalem. Why? Because Jesus told them to. And now they're going to do what Jesus says. It's not because they thought Jerusalem was so much better than Galilee. If you go and visit Israel today and you visit Galilee and Judah, Galilee is way more beautiful, way more. They weren't like city people who just wanted, you know, to be in the city. They're fishermen who want to go home, but they stay because Jesus is the one who's in charge now. They're obeying him. And then it lists who these apostles were. 11 names in verse 13. Each one of these names will give their life doing what Jesus has commanded to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth for all the peoples of the earth. Every single one of them except for John will be executed for doing so. They will literally be killed for obeying the command of Jesus. Why? Because he's sovereign. He's in charge. He has the keys now. Then it tells us that they were all continually united in prayer. And who was that? That was the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Luke wants us to know that Mary, the mother of Jesus, still believes in Jesus. And now she is committed to following him as her sovereign Lord, her King. And it tells us that his brothers were there for this prayer meeting. Now this is surprising because when Jesus was on the earth, his brothers hated him. They tried to get him to shut up. They were embarrassed that he was doing all of this stuff. They did not believe in him. But now here they are and they show up for the prayer meeting and they're united with the others in faith in Jesus. What changed? They watched him be crucified and then come back from the dead. And Jesus then, the resurrected Jesus, their resurrected brother showed up to them. And now they believe. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7 says that Jesus, after showing up to the apostles, also showed up to James. 
James is one of the brothers of Jesus who will become the leader of the Jerusalem church. James will go on to write a letter in the New Testament. It's called James. And here's the first thing he says in the letter. He introduces himself like this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He speaks about his brother, the brother that he didn't believe in while he was on the earth until after his resurrection. He speaks about him and he calls him Lord. He's sovereign. What would your brother have to do to convince you that he was the sovereign Lord of the earth? See, the presence of Jesus' family indicates that this is a community of people who have come to witness something that now they are surrendering their lives to. And that's why when they get together, they decide to have a prayer meeting. Why are they praying? Praying is not something that you do unless you believe that God can do something that I can't do for myself. It's, it's belief in God's sovereignty that actually fuels prayer. And so if God is on the throne, then we need to be on our knees before him is the conviction of these people who are gathered. So God is sovereign. They believed that he was in charge and therefore he must be obeyed. He must be pleased. And this is the testimony of all of the Bible. Psalm 24 verse one says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Everything belongs to God. Every square inch of the earth is God's. He is in authority. He is sovereign over all things. He's in charge. This means that every single facet of your life belongs to him. Your body, your possessions, your money, your kids, your very breath belong to him. He's sovereign. He's in charge. Philippians 2, I looked at this verse last week, says that the name given to Jesus is the name above all names. It's the name Lord. He's sovereign. And that means that the name Jesus has authority over your name. His name has authority over every name, over Caesar's name in their culture, over your boss's name today, and over the president's name today. Jesus is Lord. He is sovereign. He's in charge. And that means he must be obeyed. So when it comes to decision-making, First and foremost, we must surrender to God. This is the decision before every other decision. Who am I living to please? Whose will must be done? How would you answer that question? Who are you living to please? Whose will must be done? But God's sovereignty means not only that he must be obeyed, but also that his purposes in the world cannot be stopped. 
God is sovereign. That means his kingdom should come. But God is sovereign and that means his kingdom will come. God is sovereign and that means it's his will that should be done. We should be obeying his will. But he's sovereign and that also means that his will will be done. God will accomplish his purposes in the world. And Peter has come to see that. Peter has come to see that God's purposes will stand no matter what. And this is why he stands up in verse 15. And then here's what he says in verse 16. Brothers and sisters, it was necessary that the scripture be fulfilled. It was necessary that the scripture be fulfilled. And then he talks about how Judas betrayed Jesus. Now, what is he doing? He's saying, even though Judas was doing this thing, there was a higher purpose behind even Judas's free actions. The scriptures had to be fulfilled. Why? Because God spoke something and he's sovereign and he will do what he says he will do. He says this again um, in verse 22. The end of verse 22, he says, from among these, it is necessary that one become a witness with, of his, witness with us of his resurrection. The word it is necessary there actually starts the verse in verse 21 in the original. For the sake of translating, they put it down here in verse 22. But the point is, he's, he reads some scripture, he quotes some scripture in verse 20. And then he says, something that God said is necessary to happen. Now think about how weird this is that Peter is living his life this way. Peter's living his life with the conviction that God has a purpose in mind that cannot be stopped. God has a purpose in mind that needs to be obeyed, but that also will come to pass. Why is that surprising for Peter to be the one who believes that? Because when Peter was on the earth and Jesus said, we're going to the cross, I'm going to go be crucified. Peter said, no, you're not. Stop talking like that. We would never let that happen. He rebuked Jesus. Now that he's witnessed the crucifixion and he's witnessed Jesus's resurrection and he's received Jesus's teaching post the resurrection, now all of a sudden he believes that God is sovereign, that God has a plan that he's working in the world. He has a purpose that will be accomplished and it will not be stopped. And he applies that belief, that conviction to Judas, the evil one who betrayed Jesus. Peter now understood Judas as an example of this principle, that God needs to be obeyed but even if he's not, his purposes will still come about. The rest of verse 16, he says, it was necessary that the scripture be fulfilled of the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David foretold about Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Peter understands that Judas freely chose to betray Jesus. And yet it was also all happening according to the fulfillment of scripture. What scripture? Well, we're going to learn that Peter knows his Bible really well. And there are Psalms that refer to one who opposes God's king, a friend who opposes God's king. 
And Peter comes to see that David surely had friends who betrayed him, but there's a much greater completion of this theme, of this idea in David's son, the king who has been exalted to heaven. So Psalm 41, verse 9. Even my friend in whom I trusted, one who ate my bread, has raised his heel against me. Peter knew that scripture and realized now it's about Judas. Psalm 55, verses 12 through 14. Now it is not an enemy who insults me, otherwise I could bear it. It is not a foe who rises up against me, otherwise I could hide from him, but it is you, a man who is my peer, my companion and good friend. We used to have close fellowship. We walked with the crowd into the house of God, and yet this is the one who has turned against me. Peter reads that about David, and he realizes that one who's greater than David is here. Judas is opposing him. So Judas freely chose to betray Jesus, but what he didn't realize is that Jesus had chosen him for this purpose. Why was Judas one of the ones in the inner circle with Jesus who had access to Jesus so that he could betray him? Because Jesus chose him to be his disciple. Judas thought he was acting in his own best interest. I'll turn over Jesus to the authorities. I'll get 30 pieces of silver. I'll buy this nice piece of property. And then... I'll be able to have this really great piece of land for me and my future family, and it'll stay in our family for generations. Jesus will go down in destruction, but I will live on in blessing. And what Judas did not realize is that God had purposes that would be accomplished and could not be stopped. And even his free choice to betray Jesus would still result in those purposes being accomplished. God has decreed that Jesus will be blessed and that all those who oppose him will end in destruction. God's purposes will stand. God's mission to send and save will not be stopped. So even Judas's free choices do not undermine or thwart the plans of God. So, this raises an important question. How are we to think about the relationship then between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? And this is a tension and mystery in the scriptures, but here are some things that we can affirm. God is not responsible for evil in the world. Evil is the result of man's free choice to sin. Choosing our will over God's will is where evil comes from. God did not make Adam sin in the garden. Adam chose to sin. God did not make Judas betray Jesus. Judas chose to betray Jesus. But God does work through all things, including evil things, to bring about his purpose in the world. What man plans for evil, God plans for good. God used Adam's rebellion as a means to accomplish his purpose in Christ. God used Judas's betrayal as a means to accomplish his purpose in Christ. And God uses all things to bring about his purpose in Christ. Here are some important texts to remember related to this principle. These are good to memorize. 
or at least memorize the references for them. First, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. This is Joseph speaking to his brothers who sold him into slavery. He says, you planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. You did this evil thing to me. You had plans to harm me, but God planned it all for good to bring about the present result, saving all of these people. Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good according to God's purpose. Ephesians 1, we could add to this list, Ephesians 1 verse 13, all things work together in accordance to the purpose of his will. He's sovereign. He cannot be stopped. His purposes will come to pass. So, God is sovereign. He's the king over all things. Let me ask you something. Are you prepared to stand before him? He's the king over all things. And you and I are in rebellion against him. He is sovereign, we are not, and yet we try to be sovereign. Someday, everyone will stand before this sovereign Lord and the books will be opened and everyone will give an account and are you prepared for that day? Are you prepared to face the sovereign Lord, the sovereign King? Because all of us have gone our own way, because all of us have rebelled against the sovereign King of all things and deserve his judgment God and his love is on a mission to send and save. And that is why he has sent his son, Jesus, to live a sinless life, to go to a cross and die in the place of sinners, rebels like us, and to be raised from the dead to vindicate, to vindicate him. God is on a mission to send and save because he's the sovereign one who must also judge. Are you prepared for judgment day? You will either stand as a rebel or you will stand as one who has been washed by the blood of Jesus, the lamb who was slain for sinners, for rebels. Do you know the difference between Judas and Peter? It is not the depth of their sin. It's what they did about their sin. 
It is not the depth of their sin. It's what they did about their sin. Peter, in the face of his sin and his disowning of Jesus, comes to see Jesus on the cross as the only hope for failures like him. And so rather than go down in misery because of what he had done, instead, he repents. He comes back to Jesus to receive forgiveness. He trusts in Jesus and what he's done on the cross to be the thing that can restore a failure like him, a rebel like him. And that can also be your story. Peter is positioned to be the leader of the movement, not because he was flawless, but because he was a failure who understood the point of the movement. The point of the movement is not be good. The point of the movement is I've rebelled against the sovereign king, but the sovereign king has come to die for sinners and rebels like me. And so this failure can be restored and he can stand up next week in Jerusalem and proclaim to the very people who killed Jesus, repent and be forgiven. You meant it evil to kill Jesus, but God worked it for good. Now the very act of you killing Jesus can be the thing that forgives you. Look at our God. He's sovereign. He must be obeyed and his purposes cannot be stopped. So trust him. Trust in him. The wonder of surrender is this. That it's by losing your life that you actually gain it. Our ultimate joy, happiness, and satisfaction is found in handing God the keys. If you live to please yourself, you'll go down in eternal misery. But if you live to please God, you'll ascend with Christ in eternal glory. That is our hope. And so the first question you have to answer in decision-making is who is in charge of your life? Who gets to call the shots in your life? Whose kingdom are you trying to build? Whose will are you trying to accomplish? Who are you living to please? If God is sovereign, the wisest thing in the world is to surrender to his authority and serve him as king. So that's the first word for wise decision-making. The next five will go much faster. (laughs) Number two, prayer. Prayer. Notice in verse 14, they devote themselves to prayer. Our translation says they were continually united in prayer, but literally they were devoted to prayer with one mind. So this meeting that they're having where they're about to make this decision, begins with prayer and it also ends with prayer. Verse 24, then they prayed, you Lord, know everyone's hearts, show which of these two you have chosen. And notice what they're doing in their prayer in verse 24. They're appealing to God's sovereignty. They're saying, you Lord, know 
everyone's hearts. Why? Because you're sovereign. And so you show which one of these guys you want us to pick. They're submitting to his authority through prayer. And this is how they learned to pray from Jesus. One of the greatest reasons for prayer is to refocus our attention on how majestic and glorious and powerful and sovereign God is. That's one of the the main purposes of prayer. This is how Jesus taught in the Lord's prayer. He taught his disciples, these same ones who are praying now to pray like this, father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Why? Because it's by declaring the holiness of his name. It's by focusing our attention on how different he is from us, on how much greater he is than us, on how much smarter and wiser and powerful and and amazing he is than us. It's by focusing our attention, declaring the holiness of his name that we find the humility to pray the rest of the prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done. If you are amazing, we want your kingdom to come. We don't want our kingdom. You are so majestic. We want your will to be done. You're so wise. We want your will to be done. We don't want our will to be done. It's by refocusing our attention on how great God is that we find the humility to say, give us our daily bread. God, we want to depend on you and your strength to give us what we need. It's recognizing his holiness that allows us to pray, God, forgive us our sins just as we now realize we've got to go forgive those who sin against us. It's recognizing who he is, the sovereign God. He's the only one who can forgive sins. Why would we ask him for forgiveness? Because ultimately he's the one that we've rebelled against and he's the only one who could acquit us and he has through his son, Jesus. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Why is that something you would pray as you focus your attention on how great God is? Because the temptation of the world is leave God. But if you are focused on how great God is, you want to pray, God, don't let me leave you today. Help me stick with you. I'm going to be drawn to all kinds of stuff that's much, much lesser than you. I don't know if that's right grammatically but you get it. So one of the goals of prayer is to warm our hearts to God's priorities. Typically the kinds of requests that we make are things like this. God, here's my plan that I've been working on. Please bless it. Or God, I want to know your will. silent for about 10 seconds and we're like, God doesn't even freaking speak to me and reveal his will to me. And so I guess I'll just have to figure it out. But requests that we could start making if we think about the way that prayer works in scripture is we start praying for things that God does will. So here's God's will for your life. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. For this is God's will, your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality. That's God's will for your life. You discovered it. But what if that's how we pray when we want to pray for God's will to be done? God, today, would you help me become more like your son, Jesus? 
Give me wisdom to know how I might become more like your son, Jesus. Part of making wise decisions is having our desires and our priorities conformed, surrendered to God's. And prayer is one of the practices that accomplishes that. So that's number two, second word for wise decision-making. Here's number three, community. Community. Look at verse 14 again. They were all continually united in prayer. They've come together as one, as a community. And we're going to see this play out even more throughout the book of Acts. We are shaped by the people around us. We know this is true. That's true in small ways, like the kinds of foods that you eat and the kind of you know, words that you use. But it also eventually becomes true in big ways. The kinds of values that you have for life, your perspective on life, the kinds of priorities that you make for yourself. We're shaped by the community that we're a part of. And one of God's provisions for us in our life for making good decisions is the church. Part of God's design for our growth and wisdom is to be a part of a community of faith. Um, Listen to Philippians chapter three, verse 17. Paul is writing and he says, join together. So this is something you're going to do in community. Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. What is he instructing the church here? He's saying that you need to pay attention to people who are following Jesus and copy them. How do you do that? You do that by knowing them in community. Learn to imitate these kinds of people. As a church, this is one of the main things that we want to do, is be a community of faith that helps one another think wisely about life, grow in wisdom. That requires getting to know each other, discussing life with each other and scripture together. A community group is an excellent step to take in pursuing that. But just being in a community group alone is not going to make that happen. You can be in a community group. You can show up every week at six o'clock. You can even respond occasionally to the text thread and not actually get to know people and not actually give people access to know you. We want to be a church that's intentional to get to know people, that's intentional to actually ask questions about each other's lives and that gives people permission to ask us questions. This includes asking people for their opinions on things in our lives, being open to receiving input. I've noticed about myself, even like if I'm in small group or if I'm in some kind of prayer group or something, even when I'm giving an update about my life and I'm like, yeah, I've got a couple of decisions that I'm really trying to weigh some options related to this thing. I'll stop there like that was the update and I won't actually ask people, what was your, what's your opinion? What do you think? What are things that I should be thinking about as I navigate this? What are some of the values or priorities that you would put at the top as you think about this decision? I don't even give people access into doing that kind of thing. I'm just like updating them on, I've got this really tough decision. And then it's like, well, I'm part of community. Not really. You're part of the group. But community is actually giving people access to ask you questions that might even at times be uncomfortable. 
What if you began to seek counsel about some basic things in your life? So this is true when it comes to making a big decision like a a career move or buying a house or what school you're going to go to or what school you might send your kids to or those kinds of things. It's good to seek wise counsel when you're making one of those kinds of decisions, but it's also good to seek wise counsel for everyday kinds of things. Like, do you think that the way that we're spending our money reflects our values as Christians? Do you think that the way that we're spending our time reflects our values as Christians? How could we better spend our time, do you think? Where should we be focusing our energy in this season? You could ask questions like, well, for the sake of time, I'm going to keep going. You, you get it. We got to ask wise questions. Um, so here are uh, some things that you could ask as you evaluate yourself related to this. Um, are you prioritizing Christian community as part of your decision-making process? Are you prioritizing Christian community as part of your decision-making process? Are you seeking wise counsel as you make decisions? And here's, I think, a really important question. Are the values driving your decisions shared by Christians from other times and cultures? Are the values that are driving your decisions shared by Christians from other times and cultures? It's a good test for whether or not our Christian thinking is actually just American thinking or Western thinking. Okay, that's number three. Fourth word for wise decision-making, scripture. Scripture. Look at verse uh, 16 again. Brothers and sisters, it was necessary that the scripture be fulfilled. Then again, he quotes from the book of Psalms in verse 20. He doesn't have a Bible in front of him because that's not how the ancient world worked. So how does he quote from the book of Psalms? He's got it in his brain. Scripture has become part of this community. And so they're able to think about it as they make decisions. They're not cramming, trying to find a Bible verse to, to fit their situation. They have scripture just in them that enables them to make wise decisions. And that's one of the keys to making wise decisions. Um, there's two things I want you to see in uh, Peter's use of scripture here. Uh, the first is um, he has an excellent description of the doctrine of scripture in verse 16. He says, the Holy Spirit spoke through the mouth of David. The Holy Spirit foretold or spoke through the mouth of David. That's an excellent way to describe what we believe about the scripture. The 66 books of the Bible are God's word. Scripture is revelation from God to mankind. So every word is God breathed. But the Bible doesn't drop out of the sky one day from God. He just threw it and instead it comes through human authors who wrote as they were guided by the Holy Spirit. So the human authors are not pawns in the hand of God, but they wrote with their own style and grammar and literary structure. And yet underneath or directing them 
is still the Holy Spirit. So that we can say then that who is speaking in scripture? David and God. So that's the first thing is the doctrine of scripture. Excellently explained there. It's the Holy Spirit spoke through the mouth of David. But here's the second thing to notice is the deep familiarity that Peter and the apostles had with the scriptures. He says that the scripture has to be fulfilled. And then he quotes from the book of Psalms. And he quotes from Psalm 69 and 109. And this is beautiful. Um, If you go and read Psalm 69, which you should do sometime, and go read Psalm 109, Uh, Here's the situation that's being described. David is praying to God in anguish um, because his devotion to God has caused him great suffering. He's starting to be mocked and he's starting to be attacked because he's being obedient to God. And so he's calling out to God for strength and help. And he's also calling out for God to deliver him from his enemies and judge his enemies. Peter is familiar with that passage. He's read the scriptures. And so he realizes that David was the king who was being attacked there for doing what's right. But that has to be true in a more ultimate way of David's son, Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate David, the ultimate king who suffers because of his obedience to God. And God did vindicate him through raising him from the dead and him ascending to the right hand of God. And God is going to judge. And Judas is an example of that. He ends up being judged on earth because verse 18, he fell head first, his body burst open, his intestines spilled out. This became to all the residents of Jerusalem so that in their own language, the field is called the field of blood. And so Peter's meditating on this scripture and he can't help but but think about Jesus and the circumstances that he's experiencing. And so in Psalm 109, it says somebody's got to take this person's place. And so Peter's like, well, then we got to take his place. And so they look for someone to fulfill Judas's role. We can learn from Peter here in his use of scripture. What I'm not suggesting is that we read, you know, all of scripture and look for Jesus in every little nitpicky detail. Like this person had red hair and Jesus spilled his blood, which was red. And so ultimately this person's hair is representing Jesus or something. Like that's not what I'm talking about. It's not how we should read our Bibles. What I am suggesting is that we should read and meditate on scripture so that we become familiar with its message and themes so that we can learn to know, love, and trust God in his son, Jesus. That's what the purpose of the scriptures is. So meditating on scripture is one of the primary ways God reveals his will to us. It was the meditation on Psalm 69 and 109 that led to this decision to replace Judas. And this is significant because so often we want God to speak to us and reveal his will to us. And I just want to say, God is speaking. 
is. This word is living and active. And God's will for your life is that you would become like Jesus. And so the best thing you can do to know God's will is to get to know Jesus by reading scripture because all scripture testifies to him. God speaks through his word. Wisdom is learning God's word, getting it in you so that in moments of decision, you have a sense for what you should do. Typically, life's decisions are going to be more like a pop quiz than a final exam. You're not going to have lots of time to study and prepare, but you're just going to have to do something. And in that moment, wisdom is something that you can't cram for. What's the Bible verse I need for this? That's not how wisdom works. You can cram for knowledge, but you can't cram for wisdom. Wisdom has to get in you, and that takes time. But over time, as God's word gets in you, then it will start to inform your sensibilities about life. Like you'll be able to do what Paul says. You'll be able to approve the things that are superior. That is, you'll be able to look at multiple options and go, this one looks best. That's what scripture can help us do. It's how we learn to know the mind and will of God. So what does that look like? It looks like reading and meditating on scripture. By reading, here's where you can start. Decision paralysis kills Bible study in my life more than almost anything. I sit down and I'm like, I don't know what to read today. Do I feel like reading this? Do I feel like reading this? Three minutes go by. I don't, haven't read anything. And then I decide, I'll just look at my phone. And the whole Bible reading moment was killed just because of decision paralysis. So let's solve that problem now. Here's what you can read. The book of Acts. You can read one chapter a day in February and you'll finish the book. And you can even use the little scripture notebook guide journal thing as a tool to help you. And you can meditate on the right side of the page. And here's how to meditate. Google this, okay? Don Whitney methods of meditation on scripture. Don Whitney methods of meditation on scripture. It should be the first thing to come up. It's a PDF. He's got... 20 ideas, tips for how to do meditation that'll be more helpful than anything I can say. I would just have copied him. Anyway, so just Google it. That's number four. Number five, situation. Situation. Here's what I mean by this word. Courtney and I debated on a walk yesterday for a long time what the right word for this was. And I still don't know if this is best, but, um, but here's what I mean in the text. So, they're, they decide because of they're in community and they're praying and they are submitting to God's will, his sovereignty, and they've discerned from scripture, we got to appoint somebody. And so then here's what they do. Verse 21. Therefore, from among the men who have accompanied us, accompanied us during the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, from among these, so you see that twice, from among the men and from among these, it is necessary that one become a witness. Well, what have they done there? They've got to fill this 12th spot. 
Every human being in the world could be a candidate for that. So what do they need to do? They need to narrow down their options. And so they narrow it down. They say, here's the criteria we're going to use. It's got to be somebody who's been with us the whole time. From the moment of John's baptism until Jesus was taken up in the ascension, it's got to be somebody who's been with us. So they create some criteria based on the situation. They will make other decisions in their life. Even in the book of Acts, they will appoint other people to different things and they won't use the same criteria. So why are they using the criteria here? Is it because this is the divinely inspired criteria to use for all decisions? It's got to be somebody who was there from there till there. No, what are they doing? They're using wisdom to discern this is the appropriate criteria for this given situation. And that's what wisdom is. So often we start with the question, is there anything wrong with this? What's right versus wrong? And that is a good question to ask. But an even better question is, what's the wise choice? What does wisdom say to do? Wisdom requires thinking carefully about the given situation that you're in. So here's a question from a pastor I followed for a long time that can be, I think, a useful question in trying to make good decisions based on the situation that you're in. In light of my past experiences my current circumstances, and my future hopes and dreams. What's the wise thing to do? In light of my past experiences, my current circumstances, and my future hopes and dreams, what's the wise thing to do? That's a good question. By past experiences, we're asking, what happened last time? What happened last time? Now, this is an excellent question if you're a student. What happened last time you went to this kind of thing? One of the great indicators for what might happen again is what has happened. The other thing, somebody said this, I don't know who, but, um, but experience doesn't make you wiser. Evaluated experience makes you wiser. Experience itself doesn't make you wiser evaluated experience makes you wiser. So what happened last time? Let's think about it. In light of my past experiences, what's the wise thing to do? And not just that, but in light of my current circumstances, in light of where I am spiritually right now, in light of where I am emotionally right now, in light of where I am physically, my health right now, What's the wise thing to do? In light of the family dynamics that we're currently facing, in light of the financial situation that we're currently in, what's the wise thing to do? And in light of my future hopes and dreams, that is, where do you want to be in life? And is this decision a step in that direction? That is a helpful question to ask. In light of my past experiences, my current circumstances, and my future hopes and dreams, what's the wise thing to do? And in light of these things, what criteria should be driving this decision? In light of, in light of all of these things, what criteria should be driving this decision? Wisdom is learning how to match the questions and the criteria you're asking to the situation that you're in. 
Number six, action. Action. Look what happens. Verse 23. So they proposed two. So they narrowed it down. It's got to be somebody. So they proposed two. All right, let's put these two guys forward. They fit the criteria. They're both good guys. Joseph called Bersabbas, who was also known as Justice. He's got three names and they're thinking, please don't, just give us the guy with one name. (laughs) And Matthias. And then they prayed, you Lord, know everyone's hearts. Show which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this apostolic ministry that Judas left to go where he belongs. Verse 26, then they cast lots for them and the lot fell to Matthias and he was added to the 11 apostles. They made a decision and they did it. It did not get buried in committee. Now, there is a time for analysis. And then there's a time for action. It takes wisdom to know when it's time to move. But this is not um, a pattern that we are to copy necessarily. That, okay, we've got to start casting lots. The way they cast lots is they had a jar They had two rocks and they wrote each of these guys' names on the rocks. They put them in the jar and then they picked one. Matthias, you're it. But the reason that there's wisdom to be learned here is because there comes a point where we've got two really good options. We could debate it forever. You could analyze it forever, but just pick one and move forward. Just do something. And that's something that people like me need to hear. On our team, uh, on our leadership team at the church, um, I'm one of the thinkers on the team. I, the, the greatest moments for me happen not when I'm leaning forward, doing work, but when I'm sitting back and thinking. That's how I'm wired. We have people on our team like Ben and Zeb and Jenica who are doers and praise God for them. Because if I was left in charge, we would sit around and think too much. Sometimes you've just got to go. Now, sometimes you have to step back and think. And that's why community is actually helpful. But there comes a point where you can analyze something to death and it's time to move, to go. Let's be hearers of the word and doers of the word. Let's live up to the truth we've obtained. Philippians 3.15 says. So just do something. And the reason that you can is because God is sovereign. And that can be a freeing and comforting thing for overanalyzing decision paralysis, indecisive people like me. So just do something. If you want a resource to help you with that, in the bookstall, there's a book called Just Do Something. Scan the QR code, check it out. Let me pray for you and ask the Holy Spirit to help us with this. Father, we praise you for being sovereign, the only sovereign, wise king over all things. Father, we ask that you would, by your spirit, humble us and help us submit to your sovereignty. Help us to pray. We want your will to be done, not our own will. Help that to be true. God, help us to seek wise counsel. Help us to have our hearts warmed to your priorities in prayer. Help us 
to learn scripture and be able to have it ooze out of us into our decision-making. God, give us wisdom to analyze the situations we're in and then give us the courage to move. It's in Jesus' name that I ask. Amen.